Coming up on this episode. The change of stigma is big and uh, the change of stigma is normally created by misinformation, disinformation and lack of information. So we find that because communities may not have full information about how the virus spreads, then they will discriminate against or they stigmatize people who have had the virus, have recovered, or even who are seen to be from communities or groups that are high risk. For example, we've had people stigmatize health workers. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori, a public health researcher and faculty member at Ohio University. I'm excited you could join us today. We're going to continue the conversation that we started in the last episode on COVID-19 in Africa. My guest today is Dr. Gedenji Getahi, who is the Group Chief Executive Officer at the African Medical Research Foundation, where he joined in June 2015. AMREF is the largest African-led international organization on the continent and reaches more than 11 million people each year through 150 health-focused projects across 35 countries. I have worked with AMREF um, on a couple of research projects that I conducted in Kenya, in uh, the urban city, and also in the rural central province. So I'm excited to have someone who has worked literally in various sectors, and he's also a clinician by profession, and it's going to be exciting to get his perspective Uh, given the many hats that he has worn um, on COVID-19, as well as um, the vast work that AMREF is doing to engage the community to ensure that they have optimal health. So join me in welcoming Dr. Gidenji Getahi to the show. Great. It is Great to have you on today. Thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Gitahi. Uh, We're so glad that you made time to talk to us today on an ongoing conversation about COVID-19 and its impact in, um, in Africa. And we'll also have some conversation about the work that AMREF is doing in general with regard to community and public health issues. So to get us started, um, I'm sure you've seen in the news and you've seen conversations questioning the slow rate of COVID-19's impact um, on Africa and, you know, just how the number of cases and deaths do not match the projections. So what are your thoughts about this and the questions that are coming up, particularly from um, the Western side of the world, wondering why are things not what they had projected? Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that? I think the first thing I would like to say is that the projections were not targets for Africa to achieve. So no one should be surprised that uh, the projections are not met. They should actually be celebrating. And uh, one of the things that we can look at the impact of COVID in different ways. One, we can look at it from a purely infection uh, point of view in terms of numbers of infected people. What we know is that, number one, that the virus follows the speed of transmission, follows the speed of movement and interaction of human beings, because the virus doesn't travel on its own. 
Now, if you look at Africa, you look at Asia, you look at um, US and Europe, Africa has probably the lowest density of movement or mo mobility index. In fact, if you look at mobility index as was captured largely by the Android apps and also um, Apple uh, or iOS, it was very clear that actually mobility in Africa is very low. So that means that the speed of transmission of the virus will be slow. Does it mean, therefore, that Africa will escape the virus? I don't think so. I think it just means that the force of transmission is lower, and therefore Africa is likely to have an elongated pandemic where people, the virus, until there is a vaccine, the virus will still moving from person to person. It will move from person to person slower than it would in Italy because Italy has a rail system. Africa has a non-existent rail system. In fact, if you look at infection rates in Egypt and uh, South Africa, you can tell that mobility is a major factor. So the first thing I would like to say in terms of infections, the infections are rapid in urban centers in Africa. They are going to take time in the other areas and therefore we are likely to have an elongated pandemic. So we are not saved the viral infection until a virus uh, vaccine is available. If you look at on the other side of risk of fatality or death, could, you could be the other measure for impact. You'd say that for death or severe disease, then a new factor comes in, which is about risk. So assuming that the population gets in contact with the virus and gets infected, what is the risk of getting severe disease? We have seen globally that the key risks to getting severe disease, which may lead to death in unfortunate circumstances, is age first and foremost. And if you look at age, Africa's population is relatively young. Our median age is 19 years, meaning half the population is below 19. When you look at Europe, the median age is about 40 years. So you're talking about uh, a significantly older population. Only 3% of African population is above 65 years. If you look at a country like in Europe, you're averaging 22, 25%, a quarter of the population is above 65 years. So when you look at the risk factor, then you're saying that on an age, if you are to say the highest risk is above 65, then you only have 3% of Africa's population at that risk also meeting a much lower force of transmission because of mobility, most of the elderly people in the rural areas, whereas in many of the urban countries, the, the elderly people, huge elderly population living in urban centers, in houses, old people's homes or with their families, the risk is different. And finally, the risk of hypertension, diabetes, chronic obstructive airway disease. If you look at things like smoking, it is predominantly higher in Europe than in Africa. And um, uh, if you look at hypertension, diabetes, they're much higher. Obesity in the U.S. is probably 30%. It is much lower in Africa, except in South Africa. So all these risk factors are much lower. Finally, impact, economic and social impact. This is where Africa's impact will be higher than any other continent. Because the lockdowns, people have lost jobs that they didn't have initially, or they were you know, very informal. Children have been out of school. Uh, poverty is going to increase. Africa's economy is going to contract by 3% as projected right now by World Bank. So the socioeconomic impact in Africa is what is going to far outweigh the direct impact of the virus. Indeed, um, I agree with you. And piggybacking on uh, what you said about mobility, uh, you know, Africa is reopening, uh, different countries in Africa are reopening. And what do you see as uh, the challenges and opportunities with um, COVID-19 mobility and mortality rates um, now that it's reopening? What do we need to think about? 
I think there has been a major debate around lives and livelihoods. You know, do you focus on lives? Do you focus on livelihoods? But I think through the pandemic, we've learned that there's no one single answer, whether lives or livelihoods. It's both. But actually, if you don't pay attention to livelihoods, you lose lives, even if it's not due to COVID. And if you don't pay attention to the pandemic, you lose lives from the virus. So it's not either or. It's about how do you actually balance risk versus benefit, mm -hmm. knowing very well you will never have zero risk. Risk will be present. Risk of transmission, risk of uh, mortality or severe disease will be present. So the question is, how does Africa continue to reopen its economy to ensure that all the social negatives that have happened, not only economic, but also social damage of you know, increasing early child marriages, increasing increasing female genital mutilation because girls are at home and, the, you know, their fathers want wealth by selling them off because maybe they lost their job, uh, increasing domestic violence, increasing mental health illness, increasing teenage pregnancy because school-going children are at home and uh, all these things. How do you balance that against a particular risk of actually opening the economy and making, you know, and increasing the spread of the virus? You have to then say, we will reopen the economy in, phase, in phases, especially um, holding back on high-risk sectors of the economy and reopening low-risk sectors of the economy. But at the same time, Africa requiring to prepare the health system for the surge that it expects. Because we are not, I don't think any country is reopening thinking the virus has gone away. Reopening knowing that infections will increase and therefore the need to focus on building the health system to be ready for that increase in infection because it's not lockdown or no lockdown. It's a balance in between benefit and risk. Indeed. And you talk about those unintended consequences of COVID-19 with regard to teenage pregnancies, gender-based violence, mental health. So what measures um, should governments take to address those ongoing health issues? Uh, the first thing that... Um, government need to do is obviously um, look at continuity of health services to begin with. That when COVID started, there was disruption of health services. Vaccination programs in some countries were put on hold. And even where they were continuing, health workers were stretched, looking on this other side of COVID and uh, tests and all these things. And that will continue because in many countries, we are seeing even after the the, what we may call the first wave kind of slowing down, we continue to see that there'll be, you know, continued infection. So continuity of services, paying attention to community health strategies where community health workers actually work closely with households, question, give them confidence, overcome the trust barrier to ensure that information flows to the communities to know it's safe to go and seek care. The next thing is to look at um, uh, gender. And in all the responses and the work the government is doing, the governments in Africa and elsewhere need to wear a gender lens because most of the people who are mostly impacted by the negative impacts of these are women and girls. So wearing that gender lens means that in every policy you make, you think around how does it affect women and girls. I'll give you an example. When the government puts a curfew at seven, without announcing how women who are pregnant will access skilled delivery. It means the government did not pay a gender lens, did not wear a gender lens in that particular policy. When you close schools and you don't pay attention to how girls were accessing menstrual hygiene 
because they normally get the menstrual hygiene in school because many governments have programs of providing sanitary wear for girls in schools. The closure of schools must be accompanied with how do we ensure that the access to sanitary wear moves from schools to the community. So basically to avoid these negative impacts, including even girls staying at home and, uh, and getting you know, teenage pregnancy, how does the government wear the lens and say, since girls are going to be home early, then we are going to work closely with religious leaders, with the teachers, with the parents to ensure that girls have access to advice on sexual and productive health uh, in time and also ensuring that we do not make this a pandemic response, that sexual and productive health access to girls should be a continuous discussion because it then protects them in a situation like a pandemic because they know exactly what to do. So wearing a gender lens is actually one significant thing that governments must do to avoid this and toward effects. And finally, of course, economic responses and rescue, governments knowing very well that um, even as we return to school, as we reopen the economy, uh, female-led households are going to have suffered because if the women lost their jobs or they had to go take care of children because the children are no longer in school, you know, it's, you know, people assume that when schools close, that women's lives go on. Women have to take, you know, um, breaks from their jobs because in many African communities, they work to care of the children. So they have, they lose their income because they have to be home with their little ones. So even in the economic recovery, the governments need to pay this attention to this. Uh, how do we actually assist women especially? to recover, even as we support the general economy in its recovery and, um, you know, during and post-COVID. Right. And, you know, thinking about how sometimes it's slow uh, due to bureaucracy for government to respond to some of these needs, how can we strengthen the capacity in our local communities? What can they do now that these girls are home? You know, when we're trying to think about gender, we're trying to think about sexual and reproductive health matters. How do we bring this to the grassroots level? You know, the health um, aspects have community built into them. And if you look at primary healthcare itself, uh, primary healthcare, it encompasses three elements. It encompasses one, primary care, and primary care should include access to sexual productive health services, should include access to all the services that people need. But then there's the other element of multi-stakeholder engagement or multi-sector engagement, where you're looking at the fact that health is not purely um, uh, you know, just the health sector itself, it includes, you know, community engagement, includes, uh, includes um, uh, water and sanitation, it includes education, meaning that education should continue beyond uh, the schools, that schools are not the only platforms for education, communities are platforms for continuing education. And finally, it includes community empowerment and engagement. That element means that if those three are done continuously, even during a pandemic where people run back home, they already know how to work together as a multi-sectoral agencies. They already know how to act to, because multi-sectoral agencies include security, for example, where there is, if there's defilement, the security agencies are working with the education sector. They are working with the health sector. We know, especially in the, in the area of female genital mutilation, that there are laws across most of the countries that um, that outlaw female genital mutilation. But if the continuous engagement of security agencies, education, community is not happening before the pandemic, then it means it will be weaker during the pandemic. So basically, it is to strengthen our primary healthcare responses to include community, 
multi-sector and primary care um, so that we can create a resilient community. And uh, within this, it is to ensure that in the community empowerment, you're actually making communities responsible for their actions during a pandemic, making sure that they own the public health responses and they don't see them as government directives. They must see masks as something they want to do because of love and compassion for each other and saving their own lives rather than because the government said otherwise they wear masks and they see the police and they remove when the policeman passes. They must see hand washing as something that's collective community action because the government can never deliver water and soap to everyone every day. It must be community action. And they must see social distancing as something they do in their day-to-day -day activities and they should be able to safeguard themselves from those people who break the law. So it's really moving to community ownership of these responses. But not only during a pandemic, this is a continuous theme that governments must do during, after, before, or even when there's no pandemic at all. Right. And AMREF, the organization that you lead, has been at the forefront of uh, various public health uh, community-based initiatives, such as those you've mentioned, female genital cutting, um, wash, vaccination, etc. So thinking about continuity of care, thinking about the pandemic, how has AMREF been um, successful in engaging these communities and how are you all doing it now, even um, with the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic? Actually, the fact is that AMREF for the last 63 years has actually been working at the community level, has been working at the community level to bridge the gaps that exist between communities and the health system. Those gaps are financial, those gaps are geographic, they're social, they're cultural, and they're literacy. And we have been doing that without the pandemic. We've been doing that for cholera, we've been doing that for diarrhea, we've been doing that for pneumonia, we've been doing that for maternal health. And therefore, when the pandemic came, all we did was actually to continue with our strategy. We did not have to change anything. We continued to engage communities through community health workers to do uh, household, household training and capacity building for community health workers, providing PPEs to the community health workers we work with, providing access. You know, when we look at antenatal care and also skill delivery, even before the pandemic, we knew that there are barriers to access. So curfew is just a new barrier. Before that, we knew there were geographic barriers and we used camels to deliver antenatal care services to pastoralist communities. We use containers to make sure that we can actually provide health workforce for communities that are migratory. So you take the container where the people are and when they move, you move to the next container. We looked at using technology and mobile phone for training community health workers generally. So we're using text and voice on our program called LEAP to train community health workers to understand basic health responses. So when the pandemic came, we just used the LEAP platform of to train community health workers on COVID and to keep them engaged. We used the same innovation on access that we had before the pandemic for mothers to access and gentle care and skill delivery and just change that and say, fine, now that there's technology and there is um, you know, uh, better infrastructure, we'll, we partnered with other people to do things like what we call Wheels for Life, where we actually work with the security agencies of government, we work with the tax hailing company, we work with partners to finance and uh, part, you know, partners of health workers and the obstetricians who are actually very pivotal in this, in this uh, activity and midwives. And mothers could actually call a hotline 
when it's past curfew and you feel you need delivery or you need access to a, uh, you know, to, to a facility, once you call that hotline, you're connected directly to a tax hailing, uh, to the tax hailing company that then actually is already approved to travel post curfew, picks you and takes you to the facility. So these innovations are not different. They may be different in approach, but they're the same innovations that we've been creating for access to health, to services, even before. In some of the areas, because Amref deals with vulnerable communities and those largely left behind, we work for with um, communities that needed access to testing and work with those counties and local governments to transport uh, samples, just like we do for TB and HIV. In Zambia, we went out of our way to say we work with communities that are disadvantaged, and we find that some of the communities, like the, the you know the, the visually impaired could not read uh, communication materials on COVID. Therefore, they didn't know what to do. And therefore, we worked with our partners to create Braille, uh, you know, communication material on Braille. Um, so we basically responded the same way we do uh, in the community by building their capacity to respond to the pandemic themselves. And our role remained the enabler it has been for the last six or three years. Wow, that's that's really commendable, and we've definitely been able to see um, all the work that AMREF is doing. And you alluded to, you know, vaccination and immunization drives uh, associated with various other communicable diseases. Now, when we think about COVID, there's a vaccine in the works. What are your thoughts about its accessibility to the masses in different parts of Africa and the uptake in local communities? The challenge of the COVID vaccine will be multidimensional. One is access. And access here, I mean both financial access in terms of ability for governments to actually purchase and access in terms of supply chain availability or uh, responsiveness to the demand. We know, of course, that when the vaccine comes, there is going to be incongruent demand. There are countries that will buy in masses. And this is why WHO has been talking about the vaccine for covid needs to be seen as a public good so that it is actually provided to the most needy, not to, the, to those who are richest or most wealthy. So that challenge needs to be overcome. And I think that's a global responsibility issue of ensuring that the vaccine is available to the people who need it most globally, not only in the, in the wealthy uh, countries. This was ties back to what I talked about financial access, that governments already are suffering uh, clawback on their fiscal space because, you, as you know, governments have given up part of their value-added taxes to assist economies to recover. They have reduced payers you want from families so that they can uh, families that may have reduced their income because jobs job job pays were cut can survive. So these clawbacks on the fiscal space are going to also make it more difficult for governments to actually access the vaccine, which is why it needs to be global responsibility to ensure the vaccine is available to those people who are most at risk. Then it comes now to this question around who is at risk and who will be the focus initially. I think it's very important for us in Africa to realize that um, the fact that you have privilege doesn't mean that you're the first to access. And that is a danger we see that maybe those who can afford will, will pay for it and will corrupt the system or whatever way to access the vaccine before those who need it. We might see politicians, for example, having the first um, right of use because they have the power over the people. And those are things we must avoid. We know from WHO and from others and from science 
that the people who need to access the vaccine first are the senior citizens, the elderly, especially above 65. We know that people uh, who are in the front lines, health workers who are taking care of people who are sick and therefore are at high risk will require the vaccine. And finally, you know, if and when we can identify people with hypertension and diabetes, will also require, you know, priority to the vaccine. So I think there are multi-layered dimensional uh, challenges that we need to address. I'm glad we are discussing, but obviously, you know, we've had countries like the USA, for them, they're not going to be part of the joint global procurement. They want to make sure their citizens are safe first. And these challenges of nation, vaccine nationalism uh, need to be recognized, and the rest of the world needs to pull together to ensure that the vaccine is available to those who need it most fast. Right. And do you think this will take away from the existing resources that have been utilized for immunization drives for other diseases? If we follow what I've talked about, that actually this is a public good, it means that it should be accessed as a public good, that governments and uh, people who can't afford should not have to pay for it. Governments who can't afford will not need to pay for it, or the prices will be um, uh, negotiated. Remember that most of the vaccines that we use for under fives are also under arrangement from Gavi, and therefore they are also subsidized. In many poor countries, they are free. In countries that have reached low middle income status, they contribute a certain percentage, either 25% or 50%, depending on where they are. But for most poor countries, Gavi supplies the vaccines for free until the country rises to a level where it can transition from uh, the free vaccines to pay. So our hope is that if we can also approach the COVID vaccine as a public good, those who are you know, least able to afford should get it for free. Those who can pay um, you know, subsidized rates should pay subsidized rates. And therefore, there should be no crowding out of funds for childhood vaccination. I think the challenge will be delivery mechanisms. We know that for most countries, we have created delivery mechanisms for childhood vaccines. So we know that mothers post-delivery will come for postnatal care and during their postnatal visit, they'll come with their child, the child will receive vaccination, they'll go home, they'll get a card, they'll then be told which day to come, community health workers know when to follow. But now you're going to be giving this vaccine to elderly people. How do we deliver that? Do we deliver it at home? Do we require them to come to the facility? What mechanism do we use? And I think that should be the focus of many countries right now in terms of developing uh, the policies and strategies that will allow vaccine delivery to people who are non-traditional vaccine receivers. Thank you for that. And, you know, there have been concerns about COVID-19 related stigma and other discriminatory acts against those who are, who test positive. What are your thoughts about that and just the general mental health or, you know, mental illness associated with COVID-19? The challenge of stigma is big, and uh, the challenge of stigma is normally created by misinformation, disinformation, and lack of information. So we find that because communities may not have full information about how the virus spreads, then they will discriminate against or they stigmatize people who have had the virus, have recovered, or even who are seen to be from communities or groups that are high risk. For example, we've had people stigmatize health workers. You know, we have seen people who work in the COVID test laboratories being uh, stigmatized by their communities, including their families. And we've had many health workers having to 
find alternative residency uh, because they don't want to go to their community because they are seen as delivering the vaccine. We've seen stigma related to, for example, um, um, you know, nationality, where we saw stigma rising against people of Chinese origin because people believe the Chinese are the ones who brought the vaccine. This stigma, we've seen it also with people who are positive because uh, maybe on one day there was a, an ambulance. It originally, when we were dealing with contact tracing, we approached it from a very aggressive point of view where if there was a contact, the ambulance landed in the household or community and picked those people for testing. This created stigma, and therefore the people were taken away by the ambulance for testing when they got back home. People didn't want to meet them because they felt there was something around that. This has obviously created mental health illnesses. The people who are stigmatized against have stress and anxiety, and this is, um, this is largely created, as I said, by disinformation, misinformation, and lack of information. So what shall we do? We need, obviously, to provide the right information by the right people. I think we cannot rely on government itself to be providing information to people because there is, in many communities, there is a broken down trust between the people and their governments. And this is created by probably lack of social services, political cycles, uh, corruption, and people in many communities have lost faith in their own government. So we must find community leaders to deliver this message to people. We must find religious leaders. We must find community health workers who deliver this message to people because then it lands without the trust gap. The next thing we need to do is to find um, you know, psychological um, first aid for people who have gone through the stigma to ensure they're taken care of, not necessarily in a secondary or tertiary care unit, but in the community by having counselors, psychologists attached to them. They can call hotlines and say, this is what I'm going through and just support that. So if we support community on the right information, then we support the people who are stigmatized. We should achieve a much fairer and a more comfortable and accommodating society uh, over time. This stigma issue is not new. We saw it in the HIV era. Where because people didn't have information on how HIV is spread, we saw people refusing to sit and eat with people who had HIV because they felt they could be transmitted through sharing food. We saw people fearing to sit with people in meetings because they had HIV. But after people got information on the modes of transmission through science and disseminating the right science and having faith in science, we saw people change behavior. This is the same thing we need to do uh, with COVID so that we support each other. Yes, and thinking about messaging, uh, just to piggyback on what you've said, you know, communities in Africa are diverse, different languages, uh, tribes, culture, religion. What do we need to know about messaging and making it effective? The thing about messaging is that communication is understanding. That's what we need to understand, that communication is understanding. The fact that a particular statement has been released or information is on a website or a text has been sent, that doesn't mean there's communication that has happened. That is sending messages. But until the communities understand the message and also filter through the nuances and the stigma and the rumors and understand the message, we have not communicated. So we need to understand that traditional communication uh, structures need to be utilized. Churches, for example, have methods of communication in church. Um, uh, community health workers have methods of communication through house-to-house -house visits. We have communities that have village criers who announce messages in their own local language and in their own context. 
you need to contextualize the message. You need to understand what the people uh, are saying. So we need to develop again. We need to realize that communication and behavior change is a science. Surveys, regular surveys of communities, talking to people will inform us what the rumors are and therefore tailor our message to the people and their context. Because in this case also, we have found that common maze and taboos have been included in the understanding of COVID. You know, people saying that, you know, they hear it was brought by bats in China and therefore communities that have evil beliefs about bats mix up those evil beliefs with COVID transmission, you know. Um, uh, we have communities that may believe it's a curse for you to get COVID or communities that believe that particular people cannot get COVID. We saw again this in HIV where we had very negative practices where communities, and uh, we see this practice even elsewhere, where sometimes, uh, you know, men believe, elderly men believe that this, if they have sex with a, with a virgin girl, they can be cured of HIV. These myths must be cleared by using culture and sitting with people and understanding how their communication flows and then making sure that the communication that we're sending to them is sent within context, within language, and within their social settings so that they understand it and they act on it. Indeed. So as we wind down, what do you think we can learn from other epidemics? You know, you alluded to HIV and, you know, we had Ebola a few years ago. What can we learn from those epidemics to better inform our response to COVID-19? I would mention just two things. That number one, that a resilient health system that a country needs for its people is actually protective against pandemics. So countries need to invest and build resilient, equitable health systems because when the pandemics come, then they act as a shock absorber for the pandemic. If countries don't build strong, resilient, equitable health systems, it means when the pandemic comes, it's going to prey on existing vulnerabilities. So achievement of universal health coverage is critical, and not only for the pandemic, but for actually protecting the health of the people and the wealth of the people for the future. And this includes public health, disease surveillance. It is a holistic uh, approach to health to achieve universal health coverage. And finally, financial protection for those people. The second thing that we learn and we need to implement is that communities, people are at the center of any health system, at the center of any response. If you look at um, Ebola, for example, it is the communities that saw people dying and reported to the health facilities and were like, there's something going on here. And because communities, uh, you know, health, health systems were used to waiting for people to go, they didn't know how to address this community problem now to go back to the community and say what's happening. We've also seen, because uh, the health systems have not been invested in, we've seen communities lose trust in our responses. We've seen uh, communities in Congo, DRC, attack health facilities, attack health workers, attack WHO workers, because they say, where were you when our children are buying of measles, are dying of measles and, and malaria? Why is it that Ebola is more important to you than when my child died of malaria? So again, we must engage communities continuously as the foundation of a healthy society that is that in, then is resilient against any shocks that may arise from uh, uh, outbreaks and epidemic and pandemic crisis. Very true. Um, communities definitely have to be at the center of all initiatives and the importance of um, having a healthcare system. It's really engage them. 
So finally, what are the lessons from how Africa has handled COVID-19 that the world can learn from? Africa has had the advantage of watching the unfolding pandemic. So because of that, it had actually um, a start to say, if this is what is going on, we, have, we need to plan. So the early closure of borders was, was actually very crucial for Africa. The solidarity across the countries through Africa CDC, Africa Union, WHO, making sure countries have access to testing capacity. Remember when COVID came, Africa could only two countries across Africa could actually test for COVID. So building that capacity across countries now, I think there are 43 or 44 that can test, was another lesson that you could actually, if you worked regionally, you could accelerate uh, capacity building significantly. The other um, um, uh, lesson that uh, people can learn is that Africa had built, because of the various pandemics, Ebola and others that have happened regularly in Africa, Africa had built a community-based surveillance system where it's both uh, not, not equal in every country, but that surveillance system that helps people realize when disease comes up and you know, create an alert and respond to it and also the fact that Africa CDC had been built post-Ebola has been a great help to uh, this COVID-19 pandemic. If we did not have Africa CDC during this pandemic, Africa would have been worse for it. So institutionalizing responses, community at the center, uh, learning and sharing early, and regional and continental solidarity are some of the things I would say uh, that people need to learn. Uh, from Africa. But of course, there are many other lessons that Africa itself needs to learn from the world. I think we have major challenges in supply chain. We have major challenges in procurement of PPEs and commodities, and especially because Africa doesn't do local manufacturing a lot. So we must also learn from others and start to focus on local manufacturing for items that, that we can actually manufacture locally. PPEs, especially for a country like Kenya, the major breakthrough was when we started manufacturing locally and therefore they were accessible at a lower price. So local manufacturing is one of the biggest lessons that Africa needs to learn from this pandemic. That's amazing. Um, and just to think about what you've been reflecting on when you look at COVID-19 and all the work you have done, we know that you know, you're a medical doctor, uh, you did some training um, in uh, an MBA and then, you know, having to deal with all these health issues. How do you think your training has uh, facilitated, um, you know, the, the way you've led AMREF and the kinds of um, the work that you're doing right now? Well, it's a very difficult thing to talk about yourself. Um, I would just say that uh, my training in multiple sectors, I have, you know, I'm a clinician, I have been in marketing and sales and distribution. I have been in the media. I have been in development. I have been in insurance. Has given me a generalist, a generalist view uh, of the health sector that actually the system needs to work together like an orchestra, that no single instrument uh, can actually deliver the quality of sound that an orchestra can deliver. But when you work in one vertical, it is likely or it is uh, possible that you can think that if I'm a doctor, only clinical work matters in the health sector. If I'm a laboratory technologist, only laboratories matter in the health sector. But when you've um, um, uh, worked in multiple sectors, in fact, even when you've worked 
only in, in the health sector, you might think that media doesn't matter, communication doesn't matter. So when you've worked in most of these sectors, then you start to see things holistically and you're able to bring them together. And um, I think there's a book I read called Range that says the world is actually now looking for generalists and the generalists are the ones that are now most sought after because the challenges of the world are around leadership, governance and management. And for those um, general management skills, uh, global understanding, uh, multi-sectoral understanding, is more important for general management than a particular technical skill. I definitely agree with you. Uh, a multifaceted approach is, is is more beneficial and more effective, especially now that you know we we continue to deal with uh, these pandemics and the impact that they have. That's just not at the physical. Uh, it's affecting mental, social, economic, and all other aspects. So. I commend you on your work and uh, the kind of example you are in um, advocating for universal health care coverage for all and uh, your leadership with AMREF. So thank you for coming on today and thank you for giving us your perspectives on COVID-19 and other uh, related issues that we have discussed. Thank you very much and thank you for inviting me. And thank you to the listeners and we look forward to you joining us uh, next time. Have a good day.